Good morning again. Did you hear? Two weeks, Father's Day. We will be gathering again. The best Father's Day gift, well, the second best Father's Day gift ever. After Alex's noodle necklace that he gave me when I was three, that's the all-time best. All right, this week is week three in our summer series, Jesus According to the Gospel of Mark. Mark begins the gospel with the declaration, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this might surprise you. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this about the Pharisees. Verse 3, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Almost makes you want to do a double take. (laughs) Say, what, Jesus? Do everything the Pharisees? These guys, you're going to be going at uh, head to fist to fist for for the whole time of your ministry. We're going to see it in Mark 2 and 3 today. They give Jesus trouble. Spoiler alert. After our last story today, these Pharisees are going to be plotting for Jesus' execution. So what are you talking about, Jesus? Careful to do everything these guys tell us to do. Are you kidding me? But then Jesus goes on to say, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. So the problem Jesus has with the Pharisees isn't a a disagreement with what the Pharisees were teaching. The problem wasn't bad doctrine. The problem was bad practice of that doctrine. Here's the Pharisees' general philosophy. The Pharisees believed that the reason for the Jewish exile, the reason the Romans were occupying the Holy Land in the first century was because the people of Israel had gotten away from God's commands. They believed that if they could follow the law, I mean, practice it perfectly, follow it to the T, follow it like their forefathers had not followed it, then God would restore Israel. They said, what we do is important. If we want to restore Israel, our fathers turned away from God, but not us. What we do is important. And they were so adamant in their belief that a big, big part of that was keeping the Sabbath. Remember the the, the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Commandment number four was very important, really important. And we're going to see in today's passage that they have an issue with that. Not too often when we read these passages like today in Mark 2 and 3, we say, oh, how silly were those Pharisees? How archaic, oh my. You know, of course, healing someone on the Sabbath is okay. How how could they not figure that out? And I think sometimes we miss the the Pharisees' point. The Pharisees thought of the Sabbath as, as God's gift to humanity. The Sabbath day was a gift that was stripped from Pharaoh when the Israelites were were slaves in Egypt. And, And Pharaoh made the Israelites work all day, every day. They were slaves. For Pharaoh, it was 24 7 labor. If you don't work, you died. But after Moses led the children out of of Egypt and delivered the Ten Commandments, there was a new law, not Pharaoh's law anymore. And God's law said, you need a day of rest, a Sabbath. And the Pharisees believed that to be true. Their forefathers ignored the law, ignored the Sabbath, and they were determined not to let that happen. So they guarded that day. In many ways, they believed their identity was tied into keeping the Sabbath. If they lost the Sabbath, they lost everything. They lost its observant. They they lost a part of who they were. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled program, Mark 2 and a little bit of 3. Five questions that shape our discussion for today. Are you ready? Question number one. Jesus heals a dude, beginning of chapter 2, paralyzed dude. He'd been lowered through the roof by his friends because there was such a crowd they couldn't get their friend to see Jesus any other way. In verse 5, Jesus saw their faith 
He said to the paralytic, your son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is the first time in the story of Jesus, according to Mark, that he introduces us to the Pharisees. Dum, da, dum, dum. Now, up until this point, we haven't heard about these guys. Now we do. And for the first time in Mark's story, we see these guys who theoretically, doctrinally, have much in common with Jesus. Remember the progression events. Jesus leaves his comfortable home base in Capernaum, unknown, unheard of, heals a few people back there, starts preaching in the local churches, driving out demons, healing more people, all the while telling them to be quiet about it. Shh, don't tell anybody. They're not. Jesus becomes wildly popular. So this grabs the attention of the Pharisees. So now they show up. Just who is this guy that everybody's talking about? So they're sitting on the front row. Paralyzed guy is lowered down through the roof. Jesus heals the dude. This is a powerful, divine moment. A lame man walks. How awesome is that? But the Pharisees have a problem. Not that Jesus healed him, but the way Jesus healed him. Jesus didn't say, be healed, boom, you know, and the guy walks away. That probably would have been fine. Instead, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think Jesus knew what he was saying, don't you? He knew who was in the crowd. He knew who, who had showed up to check him out. So he says, your sins are forgiven. Which, by the way, another little point of history in the first century, if you had leprosy, the belief was, you know, only God could heal you. In the first century, the common belief was if you were sick, I mean, really sick, had leprosy, blind, or like this guy, lame, you must have been a terrible, terrible sinner because God is punishing you for whatever terrible, terrible sin you did that caused you to be in the condition you are in. So Jesus, in a son of God manner, says your sins are forgiven. And the big question, verse 7 why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly, boys, exactly. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Bingo, bing, 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 bing. Guess who's with you? Second question comes in the next story. Jesus is walking down the road. He sees a dirty, rotten Benedict Arnold, collaborator with the occupying army, a tax collector, a guy worse than pond scum, rotten to the core, tax collector. And Jesus calls that guy, Levi is his name, to follow him. He wants a lion, cheating, lower than low, scum of the earth guy to follow him? Which, by the way, just so you know, this calling is different from Peter and Andy and Jimmy and John back in chapter one. They were fishermen. They could go back to their boats if things didn't work out. In fact, after the crucifixion, remember, that's exactly what they did. Jimmy and Johnny's daddy, Zebedee, owned the business. They could go back fishing. So could Pete and Andy. They could go back fishing. But Levi, once he left that lucrative tax collecting business, there was no going back. And Jesus said, follow me in Levi, also known as Matthew, by the way. Levi did. He just, he just followed Jesus. He was so transformed by Jesus then, he invited Jesus to dinner along with all of his friends. Now remember, Levi's tax collector, right? Traitor, lower than lower, pond scum sinner. He would have been excommunicated from the synagogue, persona non grata. He was not welcome in the synagogue. No upstanding, trying to serve God religious person would have been seen with a guy like him. So if you've just left everything to follow somebody, he was so important that you gave up this lucrative business. Wouldn't you want to invite your friends to meet this guy too? 
Of course you would. Of course, he didn't have any church friends. All of his friends were guys like him, other person, persona non grata folks. So that's who invited the dinner to meet Jesus. And guess what? Jesus went. And Jesus was very comfortable there. I'm sure he didn't agree with all their behaviors. I'm sure he didn't take a poll on their political positions or their theological agenda. Jesus was just there. You know what? We don't have to agree with somebody. We don't have to, 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 to always agree with everything they say in their agenda to love them, do we? Can I tell you, it's so important for the church, every church, that we are welcoming anybody, everybody. They'll feel welcome. We want them to come. We want everybody to come. If they're not going to hang out with us as we talk about Jesus, guess what? They're going to hang out with somebody that has nothing to do with Jesus. We want everybody to be like Jesus. Everybody needs to be welcome. At least that's the way Jesus saw it. So big question number two, verse 16. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus hung out with them, all right. He loved them. Maybe we should too. Okay, big question number three. Happens when the Pharisees observe an important thing. The Pharisees could be summarized in four words. Temple, Torah, territory, tribe. And Jesus was not only offering forgiveness to lame guys, and eating dinner with sinners, but now he's, he's not observing fasting in the fasting tradition of the Pharisees. The Old Testament called for people of Israel to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement. They fasted on the Day of Atonement to mourn for their sins from that year. One fast once a year. The Pharisees, wanting to hedge their bets, again trying to show God just how serious they really were, and how they really wanted to follow the law and do everything possible to bring about the restoration of Israel and kick the Romans and their pagan ways out. They didn't fast once a year. They fasted twice a week. If fasting one time a year was good, fasting a hundred times a year is a hundred times better. It really showed they're serious, God. But Jesus and his crew, they didn't fast twice a week. Even John the Baptist before his imprisonment, he fasted, but not Jesus, no, sir. So they asked big question number three, verse 18, underline it. Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, I got to tell you what Jesus answers to that question. We can't just skip by it because I think it's important, maybe more now than ever. Jesus said this in verse 19. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they'll fast in that day. Jesus equates himself with the bridegroom. When a bridegroom is around, it's a party time, right? I mean, usually when there's not a pandemic. Wedding receptions have been canceled. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan and Chelsea, our awesome tech guy, Jordan, newly married for three weeks now, had this big wedding plan, big reception. Supposed to, it would have been a lot of fun. Supposed to have been this week. Pandemic stink. Usually, normally, the bride and groom are there. It's the happiest day of their lives. It's a party celebration. And Jesus is saying, you, you boys don't get it. The Messiah is here. The bridegroom is here. It's time to celebrate now. But then did you notice what he said next? This is the part that I think is really important for us. Verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken from them. We're living in that, 
in between time already, but not yet. Jesus has already come. Remember Jesus' first words way back in Mark 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Verse 15. Already happened. Time is fulfilled. The Messiah has come. First time. But we're living in this not yet because we're still waiting for his second coming. Which between you and me and the apple tree, I believe Jesus could return any day now. I mean any day now. You got to be ready. But in this in-between time, before he comes, what are we going to do? Jesus' words. And then they will fast in that day. Now, I know many of us, we fast during the Lenten season. But what does fasting look like in our already but not yet time? When circumstances in life are overwhelming. Sound familiar? Fasting can bring about spiritual breakthroughs. Listening, we're all experiencing something like we've never before experienced in our lifetime. We've never been quarantined for months We've never been limited in where we go and what we do. Carla is, still hasn't been to the beauty salon. She is not a happy camper about that. We've never experienced 110,000 deaths due to a virus in such a short time. We've never had our loved ones pass away without our being by their side. We've never had so many people experiencing such deep loneliness and isolation. We've never had such political unrest. We've, we've never viewed images like George Floyd's death, and it's horrific, and we long for a country. Much like the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King, where, where his children were judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. We all want that, don't we? We all want that. We all want a country envisioned by the, by the prophet Amos who said, but let's, let justice roll like the waters and the righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And this is not breaking news. We're not there yet. My brother and sister, Todd and Rashonda Womack, they've had to have far different conversations with their boys than what Carla and I ever had to have with my boys. All because of the color of their skin. See, there's an elephant in the living room in America right now. And that is there's a racial divide and it breaks Jesus' heart. There's an unlevel playing field today when it comes to people of color, discrimination, racial stereotyping, racial bias. It's alive and it breaks Jesus' heart. If what's happening now doesn't call you to call out to God and cry out to him like Amos and say, Lord, we need to have justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It should send us to our knees. It should cause us to say, like John Wesley, there is no holiness but social holiness, and I need to be a part of the master's business. So my question, the big question, when asked why his followers weren't fasting, Jesus said, because the bridegroom is with them. You don't fast when it's time to celebrate. He was there, but, Jesus said, but, 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 a day is coming when he wouldn't be there. And in that day, Jesus said, his followers would be fasting. So the big question, if you're not going to fast now, with all these strange and curious and troubling and heartbreaking and frustrating times, if you're not going to fast now, when will we do it, church? This week, I started fasting a meal a couple of days a week, fasting so I could better pray, fasting to focus on the great needs that we as a people, as a church, as a country, as a world needs. Fasting and praying that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done. Yes, here in Flint, but in our country and all the earth. This week, the Board of General Superintendents called today, June 7th, as a day of fasting. 
Jesus isn't physically walking the earth. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. So, okay, the Pharisees asked, why aren't your, why aren't your followers fasting? And Jesus said, they will. One day they will. My brothers and sisters, we better. If not now, when? Next question. Pharisees mind the big question, right? We've already talked a little bit about it. Verse 24. Why aren't they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Who's they? The disciples. What were they doing? Eating a snack. Walking down the road, munching on some first century Triscuits or Cheetos, grains of wheat. Listen, Jesus wasn't trying to pick a fight with the Pharisees. He was living his normal, well, normal for the Son of God, normal life. Healing people, chasing out demons, calling followers, being present. And here he is, walking with his disciples, grabbing a little snack. But you know, that whole following the law perfectly business from the Pharisees. Don't take any chances. Don't deviate one iota from the law. Hey, you can't grab a head of wheat on the Sabbath. That's harvesting. If you grab one head of wheat, what's to stop you from grabbing two heads? What's to stop you from grabbing a bushel or two bushels or a hundred bushels? That's harvesting. And all harvesting is wrong on the Sabbath. It's the law. We want to honor God. You know, we can end this exile if, if you and your followers would just honor God. Why are your boys doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? That was the big point. Now, the easy answer to their question would have been if Jesus said, Oh, excuse me, Mr. Pharisee. You are so right. And in normal circumstances, I would agree with you 100%. But you remember, of course, when, when David and his boys were gathering wheat on the Sabbath, they were hungry. But that's not what Jesus said. Verse 25. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? Of course they read it. They knew the story that Jesus was referring to, like all the stories in the Old Testament, like the back of their hand. I told you in week one, that was the Old Testament was kind of their pop culture. They knew every story, everything about David and his men. Have you never read? <laughs> I love Jesus' response to these guys. Nothing could be more insulting than to suggest that they hadn't read the story. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's saying, lighten up, boys. Look at the big picture, not the minutia. Are we ever guilty of that? I think we probably are. We're more like the Pharisees than any of us would care to admit. People in the world, people who wouldn't step foot in a church, people like the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus was eaten with a few stories back. Those people ask things like, why is the church folks so concerned about the minutia? Pick whatever pet little favorite tiny little life rule you want to pick. They say, why are they concerned about that and miss the big deal things like justice and mercy and humility? See, that's what the Bible says we should be focused on, isn't it? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy? to walk humbly with your God? The Pharisees who so wanted to usher in this glorious restoration of Israel developed 39 categories of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. 39 categories. They had the minutia covered, the teeny tiny rocks covered. But what about the big rocks? Did they care about justice? Well, in the next story, we're going to see how the Pharisees start scheming to murder Jesus. No, they didn't care about justice. Listen, my brothers and sisters, we need to listen, humility. We need to love, mercy. We need to seek justice, not for a select few, but for all of God's children. 
if, if that's what requires of us, God says, that's on the final exam. Did you do justice? Did you love mercy? Did you walk humbly with your God? Last question. Pharisees don't ask it. Jesus does. Once again, Jesus is in the synagogue. Once again, it's Sabbath. Once again, there's a needy person. Once again, the Pharisees are there with their lack of humility, lack of mercy, lack of justice. And they're standing around watching to see what Jesus does. Will he heal this guy? Jesus has no excuse. He knows the rules. No healing on the Sabbath. That's work. It's a trap. You see that, right? They know what Jesus is going to do. They know the guy's going to show, show up with his shriveled hand. It's a Sabbath. It's a trap. Mark says this in, in verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. He's saying, let's get this out in the public, boys. Everybody's got to see. No secrets, no backroom deals, very public. Stand up in front of everyone. Hey, Pharisees, you got a good look at this guy? And then Jesus, not the Pharisees, asked the question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? The Pharisees knew the answer to that question. Every single one of us knows the answer to that question. It's a dumb question. It's not bad to say Jesus is asking a dumb question because Jesus knew it was a dumb question. You don't have to be a religious person to know the answer to that question. Is it better to be, do good or evil? Is it better to save a life than to kill it? It's a no-brainer. This is not rocket science. Verse 4. But they were silent. You should underline that too. Are you kidding me? They couldn't answer the simple, easy, second grader type of question. Are you kidding me? A lot of times people are silent in the face of injustice. Let me just say, Jesus wasn't happy then. He's not happy now. When, when supposed God followers are silent on the face of injustice, it breaks the heart of Jesus. Verse 5. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. The only place where the Bible says straight out Jesus was angry is right here. Even when he's flipping tables in, in, the, in the temple of the money changers, his actions show he was angry, but it doesn't say straight out that he was angry. But here it does. What makes Jesus question to these guys so ironic, so tragic, so sad? These guys were so upset that Jesus was healing on the Sabbath, doing good, mind you, doing good. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately, euthus, there that word is again, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. They were so worried about Jesus breaking commandment number four, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, but they were perfectly content to break commandment six, thou shalt not kill the Pharisees teamed up with the Herodians. They were sworn enemies, the Pharisees and the Herodians, but they teamed up together to kill Jesus. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other, hated each other. Think of the most radical left person and the most radical white person, uh, 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 right person, turning to, together and, and, and joining forces in order to kill somebody. Jesus didn't sit well with the religious authorities, the Pharisees. He didn't sit well with the political authorities, the Herodians. I gotta tell you, I'm not so sure that Jesus sits well the political folks these days. And sadly, 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 I'm not always sure that he sits well with the religious folks. Because Jesus has a way of shaking up the status quo. Jesus isn't always politically correct. Jesus' priorities aren't always what even the church values. And it pains me to say that. I hate to say it. But can I straight out say this? We need to get back to Jesus in the church, 
in America, in our homes, in our lives. We need to get back to Jesus, pray and fast. All right, this Sunday has been about questions. Four questions that the Pharisees have for Jesus and one question that Jesus has for the Pharisees. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus happy with your priorities? Does your life reflect the things that were important to Jesus? Are you like Jesus? Are you doing what God commands us? Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. There's a preacher in Philadelphia. He tells a story about a, a guy named Joe. Joe was miraculously converted at the Bowery Mission in New York City. Prior to his conversion, Joe had kind of gained a reputation for being a drunk, for whom there was no hope, only the miserable existence in the ghetto. But following his conversion and his new life and God, everything changed for Joe. Joe became the most caring person that anyone at the mission had ever known. Joe spent his days hanging out at the mission, doing what needed to be done. There was never a task too lowly for Joe. There was never anything that he considered beneath him, whether it was cleaning up vomit from, from, from some sick alcoholic or, or cleaning up the toilets in the filthy men's room. Joe did whatever was asked, always had a smile on his face, gratitude in his heart just for the chance to help. He could be counted on to serve food uh, to the most, most, most needy or help an inebriated man find a place to sleep. Joe was, Joe was a living example of a changed life. Well, one evening, the director of the mission was preaching the message before the evening meal, like a lot of times happens at missions. And usually, like a lot of times happen at missions, the crowd was still kind of sullen, drooped heads, not paying attention. But there was one guy, one guy at the back that was paying attention. And he went down to the altar and he knelt to pray and he was crying out to God to, 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 to change him. And this repentant drug addict kept crying out, Oh God, make me like Joe. Make me like Joe. I want to be like Joe. And the director of the mission leaned down and said, Son, I think you better be praying. Make me like Jesus. And the guy looked up at the director like he was from the moon. And he said, Is he anything like Joe? I never heard about Jesus. Is he anything like Joe? When people look at you, does your life make them say, that's the kind of Christian I want to be? That's the kind of relationship with God I want to have? That's the kind of faith I want to display? If someone never, ever heard about Jesus, would they look at your life or look at the things that you post online or look at the way you conduct yourself and say, that's the person I want to be. I want to be like Joe. I want to be like Susan. I want to be like Jordan. I want to be like Rob. Are you living like Jesus? That's the big question for today. We're going to sing, and we're going to celebrate the one who came not to, to make you fit into what the powers that be say. He came not to make you rich. He didn't even come to make you religious. He came to fill your life so that you might live a life that displays the power of God, so that love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control might be reflected in you. He came to make you like Jesus.